We have two scripture readings this morning. The first one comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3. Our second one comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Hear the words of God from Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And from Mark. As Jesus continued down the road, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Teacher responded, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. He said, You're lacking one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, It will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples, so Jesus told them, Children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle for, rather than the rich person to enter God's kingdom. They were shocked even more and said to each other, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully and said, It's impossible with human beings, but not with God. All things are possible for God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Thank you. So I had the opportunity over uh, the last couple of weeks to <clears throat> to engage in some holiday travel, and I wanted to say something about that to the thousand folks who will be in attendance today and the millions watching around the world. The left lane is for passing. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yes? The left lane is for passing. So I got the chance to either stay behind a semi-truck over in this lane, or I can move over here and sit behind somebody who forgot that the left lane is for passing. And I think you should have to sign a contract when you get your license that says, I acknowledge that the left lane is for passing under penalty of having to give my first kid to something else, right? Uh, it's The left lane is... Is for past. Now, here's my question. You ever had something like that stick in your crawl? Something you feel like everybody in the whole wide world has lost their mind because they're not doing this thing, right? The problem is that I, I look around our society and I don't think it's just these random things that kind of bother us. I, I'm seeing a a really heightened level of discord in our world right now. Uh, first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, before I even have my quiet time, is uh, I grab my tablet and I look at my two news feeds. I look at CNN and Fox. What? Yeah. And my tablet doesn't even explode when I do that. It's crazy. Uh, and you know what's interesting about that is... Almost never are they reporting the same news story. 
Right? Now, you could say that's because one or the other has the wrong worldview, and I don't know, maybe you're right. But here's, here's what I see, and here's what worries me a lot. It seems like we can't even really agree on what the problems are in our society. But there, there are problems in our society. There are social issues and economic issues that need to be addressed. There are international issues that need to be addressed. I, I have a kindergartner. The boy is, is a treasure. In fact, I tell him a lot that he is my treasure, along with his little sister. And I say, do you know what a treasure is? And they always say, no, daddy. And I'll say, a treasure is the most beautiful, important, special thing in all the world. You'd give up all your toys and all your treats and all the money in your piggy bank just to have your treasure. And you know who mommy and daddy's treasures are. That little boy is my treasure, along with his sister. And I think about what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School every once in a while. And it chills my blood. There are problems that need to be addressed, but somehow our society has lost this capacity to have complicated conversations. And for this reason, I think maybe the single greatest issue that faces our society today is a demise in civility. We can't solve our greatest problems because we can't even talk to each other anymore. And so I pick up my news feeds and I look at them and they make me want to do one of two things. I either want to put them down and forget that I have read about all the discord in the world. We'll call that the path of disengagement. Or if I dwell on what I am reading through my news sources, I find myself becoming increasingly hopeless. And here's what I know. I know that Jesus Christ did not come to this world so his church would disengage from the world, right? And Jesus didn't come to this world so that you and I would give ourselves over to hopelessness. Today we're beginning a new sermon series called Be the Change. I have my own perspectives on the world, and I hope you do too, but this series is not about advocating for one worldview or another. This series is designed to help us recognize that we may disagree on certain elements, but as the church, we are united by one mission. And you say, what is that mission? Well, I like the way that our our parent church, the United Methodist Church, has framed the mission for the Church of Jesus Christ. It says our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We're called to make disciples. We're called to change the world. And so when the world is dark, that means that it's our job to bring light. And when the world lacks hope, it is the job of the church of Jesus Christ to bear hope. When the earth, when our society stands in need of change... We don't walk away and we don't sit down. We're called to be the change our world needs desperately. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to examine the world that Jesus Christ dreamed of by taking a look at a series of statements called the Beatitudes. These statements of blessing are um, able to turn our understanding of the world around us upside down and at the same moment give us exactly the inspiration we need to bring the kind of change that God dreamed of. So today as we launch into Be the Change, I want to begin with the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
If we're going to change the world, Jesus started the most famous sermon in history with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these are words that are nominally familiar to most of us. If I were to ask you to repeat them, many of you could repeat those words back to me verbatim. You know them. They're in our lexicon of understanding. But if I were to ask the question, what do these words mean? My sense is that many of us would hymn and haul to try and articulate what a poverty of spirit means. So. To try and understand this first beatitude, I want to tell you four different stories from the Bible today. The, the good news is that you've heard these stories, or most of you have before, so the goal isn't to tell you something new about the stories, but rather to recognize a link that we see throughout Scripture. So to understand what it means to be poor in spirit, let's start by talking about a woman named Sarai, who happens to be laughing She's laughing because God has just told her that she's going to have a baby. She's 60 years old and she's never had a baby before, but God says she's going to have a baby. And so Sarai laughs and laughs and laughs. And when she picks herself up from her laughter, in my mind, the next thing she does is she starts to apportion the nursery, right? Because that's what we do when we know we have a kid, we get the nursery. It's something we can do. Nothing but the finest sheepskins for Sarai's baby, right? So she gets to the nursery put together and she waits. And she waits. And she waits. A year goes by. Five years go by. Ten years go by. Still no baby. And so Sarai says, you know what? Maybe God needs my help. I've said that to myself before. Have you ever said that? Maybe God needs my help. And so she comes up with a a really interesting plan. She has a handmaiden by the name of, of Hagar. And Sarai convinces Hagar and Abram, her husband, to know one another in the Old Testament sense of the word. And Hagar becomes pregnant. And this is where things get really interesting. When it comes time for Hagar to deliver the baby, Sarai has Hagar sit on her lap while she delivers the baby so that Sarai can claim the child as her own. This was a practice in the ancient Near East. So two things I want to reflect on about this. One, gross. Right? It's gross. Ew. And secondly, is it fair to say that Sarai had some control issues? Yeah? Uh, this is a pretty involved plan. And her plan ultimately uh, creates some, some big problems in her family. But as time goes by, God is what God always is. Faithful. And God gives Abram and Sarai a little boy, and they name him Isaac, which means laughter, because Sarai laughed. But what I really want you to see is this. After it takes place, Sarai gets a new name. Sarai the meddler and schemer (laughs) becomes Sarah. The mother. Or, we could tell the story of a guy named Simon. This is a story we've all heard before. Simon's standing there trying to figure out why in the world he's awash in fish right now. Turns out, Simon was not a particularly gifted fisherman. He'd fished all night. He hadn't caught anything. And Luke tells us that Jesus comes along in the the morning and says to him, Hey man, um, let's go fishing. And Peter 
could rightly have said to Jesus, you stick to being a rabbi, I'll stick to being a fisherman, because what you don't know, Jesus, like Jesus didn't know it, but what you don't know, Jesus, is we don't fish during the day on the Sea of Galilee. To this day, if you went to the Sea of Galilee, you wouldn't see fishing boats with nets during the day. Because the Sea of Galilee is a remarkably clear body of water. And so if you try to fish with nets, the fish will see the nets during the day and they'll swim away. That's why they were fishing all night. And Peter had, Simon had fished all night. He'd fished all night long and he hadn't caught anything. In the prime hours of the fishing, he hadn't caught anything. And here comes this preacher who says, let's go fishing again. And then they get out in the middle of the water and as if to add insult to injury, Jesus tries to tell Simon how to fish. You should throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And I feel like Simon almost certainly started to grumble. He probably said, you should drive in the left lane. You know what I mean? Um, but he does what he's, he's asked to do. He puts the, the nets on the other side and Simon brings up this windfall of fish and he can't believe it. And you know the story. You know the story. Simon begins to follow Jesus. Three years later, standing in the courtyard of a man named Caiaphas, during his best friend's greatest hour of need, Simon denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Of course, Jesus is filled with grace and forgives Simon. And 50 days later, Simon preaches a sermon that catches 3,000 people with his first cast. And all of a sudden, Simon the turncoat becomes Peter, the rock upon which the church will be built. Or, we could tell the story of a man named Saul. Saul's an interesting guy. He was an incredibly well-educated man. He sat under the tutelage of a guy named Gamaliel in the first century Near East. Uh, there wasn't a better teacher of Jewish law than Gamaliel. It would be tantamount to going to Harvard Law School. He got the best education he possibly could get in the law. But not only was he well-educated, he also was filled with great zeal. And he wanted to cancel out this scourge, this cancer inside of Judaism, a new movement that was growing called Christianity. And so he sought out Christians and helped put them to death. We know this is true because the Bible tells us that Saul was present at the stoning of the first martyr, a man by the name of Stephen. Now, when we think of stoning, we think about people picking up stones and throwing them at somebody. That's not how stoning worked. The way stoning worked was someone would be bound hand and foot and they'd be placed at the bottom of a small ledge. And the person who had accused them would pick up the biggest rock they could hold and they'd drop it on them. It was a heinous thing. If they didn't die the first time, the next person would come and drop another rock. And not only did Saul try and try not try to stop this, not only did Saul not try to stop this, but, but he said to the people who were murdering someone for the, the, the crime of being a Christian, he said to them, hey guys, let me hold your coats to make this easier for you. And then one day he was on the road to Damascus in hot pursuit of some Christians. And he got knocked off his donkey. And he heard the voice of God. And you know what Saul happened, happened in his soul? Something changed, changed forever. Saul became the most prolific writer in the Bible. He wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. Saul started to take the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the Jewish church to the Gentiles. He was the one who converted the first convert on European soil, a woman by the name of Lydia. 
He's the first to take the gospel to the West. All of a sudden, the chief prosecutor and persecutor, Saul, becomes Paul, the chief evangelist. Or, we could tell the story of a young man who saw Jesus walking by one day, a young ruler. He was wealthy. And he went and he knelt before Jesus. And he said, Teacher, what is it that I have to do to earn eternal life? You hear that? To earn eternal life. And Jesus said, oh, you want to earn it? Well, if you want to earn eternal life, all you've got to do is follow all of the commandments perfectly. Now, this was meant to stun the rich young ruler. If Jesus looked at you or me and said, if you want salvation, you've got to earn it by fulfilling all the commandments perfectly, all of us, all of us would be without hope. But the rich young ruler doesn't catch it. He doesn't see it. Jesus says, follow all the commandments, follow them perfectly. And the rich young ruler says, no problem. I've done that since I was a little kid. Really? Really? Jesus said, okay, how about a pop quiz? If you followed all the commandments perfectly, let's just take the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. If you have no other gods before me, it shouldn't be a problem for you to go sell all your stuff, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. The Bible says that the rich young ruler walked away. And the disciple says, if this is the standard, how can it happen? How can anyone experience salvation? And Jesus says, what is impossible for you? It is possible for God. Jesus came to do the impossible. He came to make our best efforts seem absurd. Sarai went to great effort. Simon made a huge mistake. Saul was party to murder. And if you think about it, all the rich young ruler did was to believe he could do it himself. And therein lies the wisdom, church. This is an absurd kingdom. The kingdom of God is an upside-down, absurd kingdom where a 90-year-old woman laughs as she holds her brand-new baby boy A lifelong weary fisherman hauls in an impossible catch of 3,000 people on his first cast. The chief persecutor becomes the chief proselyte. It's an upside-down kingdom indeed. Four people. Three got new names. Sarai became Sarah. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. And one remains nameless. Perhaps this is the clearest explanation of the first beatitude. The one who tried to make a name for himself remained nameless. But those who did not walk away, those who despite years of mistakes and false starts, strove to follow God, trusted God, they got new names and a new life. So here's the first thing we've got to know about the kingdom of God. We are not citizens of this kingdom because we are great. 
Like Sarai and Simon and Saul, we have made a boatload of mistakes. So many mistakes, in fact, that our souls from time to time can feel impoverished under the weight of our mistakes. But we take heart. Why? Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we want to change our society, the first step is to recognize that we are not better than those around us. In fact, we are unified by our poverty and our need. One of the reasons that I love AA and NA is because people don't walk into Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous and say, all right, I'm ready to fix myself. In fact, one of the chief assertions, the earliest assertions one has to make when walking into AA or NA is the recognition that I am powerless to help myself. I can't stop drinking or using. If I could, I would have done it already. I need the help of a higher power. In other words, if I want to find healing, I must start from a position of poverty. You know what people in poverty don't do anymore? People in poverty don't compare themselves to one another as much. Two people freezing to death on the side of the road, one doesn't look at the other and say, I'm better than you because your socks have three holes and mine only have two. Poverty costs us our pride. When I recognize the impoverished nature of my spirit, I can't say, I'm better than you because I'm white and you're black, or vice versa. I can't say I'm better than you because I'm male and you're female, or vice versa. And while it's important that we hold our own beliefs and convictions, People in poverty don't look at one another and say, I'm better than you because I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat or vice versa. We are united in our need. And if we want to find salvation for ourselves, let alone our society, we have to start here. Sarai became Sarah. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. They changed the world because they recognized the limitations of their own power and allowed God to use them. The rich young ruler remains nameless to history because he was convinced he could do it all himself. Poverty costs us our pride. And it creates a sense of shared need. The living God can do something with people like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Holy God, I stand before you in the company of my friends and brothers and sisters and confess that there have been many times when I have thought myself better than another because of my convictions or my choices. 
I have failed to recognize that I am utterly and completely dependent on your grace. And I am not alone in this room. So we confess, O oh God. We confess that we all share a need. We need you. And we ask that that shared need would unify us. That we would recognize that that is the common point of beginning for transformation in our lives and in our world. We need you. As we come to the recognition of our own limitations, we pray that you would give us a new sense of our purpose and identity. We pray that you would give us new names. That we would know that we are children of the living God. Help us go forth from this place possessed by a poverty of spirit. A common uniting need to bring hope into hopelessness and light into darkness. We pray these things with great expectation because we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen.